Hello, and welcome to Tech and Learning's podcast interview with Kathleen Norris and Elliot Soloway. My name is Scott Trailer, and I'm the founder and CEO of a children's content and technology company called 360 Kid that specializes in the development of forward-thinking learning technologies. I'll be speaking with Kathleen Norris and Elliot Soloway, two pioneering educators who are defining the future of technology and learning. Dr. Kathleen Norris, a former high school teacher of over 14 years, is currently a professor in the Department of Technology and Cognition at the University of North Texas. Kathleen is also the past president of ISTE and the past president of NECA, the organizing body for the country's leading technology and education conference, NECC. Dr. Elliot Soloway is a faculty member at the University of Michigan. In addition to teaching at the university, Elliot is involved with a number of grant initiatives for the development of middle school science instruction through technology. His research also involves working with many different school districts to define technology-based curricula. Together, Kathleen and Elliot have authored and published over 100 different research papers on a variety of different learning techniques through the professional organization, the Association of Computing Machinery. They are also founders, partners, and collaborators of the handheld software company, GONO. I had the opportunity to interview Kathleen and Elliot on their thoughts regarding mobile technologies and this platform's ability to deliver educational content to students. This interview was recorded in October of 2008 and has been edited for clarity purposes. Let's start with our questions for Kathleen and Elliot. Kathleen? Elliot, thank you very much for speaking with me today. To begin our interview, could you share with us how your university work and the work you were involved with at your company, GoNo, have influenced your thinking regarding technology use in the classroom? Well, Kathy and I worked together for about 15 years, and a bunch of years ago, we took on the task of trying to understand why is it that technology has not impacted K-12 education in the same way that it's impacted basically every other aspect of human endeavor. We conducted a survey called the Snapshot Survey, and we thought when we went into it, oh, it's going to be something about the teachers, the older teachers, you know, the green-haired teachers. There's something about the teachers that is, is problematic, and then if we figure that out, then we could address that problem, and, uh, and then the computers and technology would have an impact. Well, what we found was that it had only to do with access, that it wasn't about the teachers at all, it was about the fact that there was such a limited amount of access. 65% of the classrooms had one computer or less in their classroom. We found 60% of the kids were spending less than 15 minutes a week on a computer because there weren't enough computers. There weren't any computers. So the answer is, why hasn't technology had an impact on K-12? It's, well, there hasn't been any technology, so the kids couldn't use it. And if they couldn't use it, they certainly weren't able to learn from it. And that was really a startling realization. The fact that it is about access was sort of the, the, a necessary condition. Kathy, why don't you take the story up from there in terms of how we realized that the, the mobile handheld might be uh, the, the solution. Well, in the survey that Elliot was talking about, we surveyed more than 10,000 teachers across the country, from Santa Clara, California, to Florida, to New York, so we had a really good mixture of teachers. And when we found out there was this access problem, we decided that if we keep going down the path that we're going, which was trying to do laptops, the solution was just never going to happen. Laptops on the scale that we need when we're talking about 55 million 
children mm-hmm. in the United States in public schools, that solution just does not scale. And besides that, we didn't really believe that that was the right answer. So five years or so ago, Elliot was in a meeting. He was talking to Roy P. Roy P., the professor at Stanford University. Yeah. And he called me and said, we've got to start developing for the Palm computer. Now, this was when the Palm first came out. He said, this is a real computer. Roy's convinced me this is a real computer. So we had some NSF money that was for another grant, and we decided to take that money, what was left of it, and try to develop educational applications for this Palm computer. In other words, take a businessman's device and retrofit it so that it could be used in schools because it was a very low-cost, easy-to-use device. And so during the summer, we had a group of undergraduate students, very, very bright, enthusiastic, and we were going to develop what we called the Cool Dozen Apps. That was, that was Elliot's terminology. Let's develop 12 apps. And we had talked to teachers about what kinds of things they did in the classroom and what kinds of ideas these, the students had for what they would want if they were in those grades at that time. And we didn't come up with quite 12 apps, but we came up with quite a few. Almost immediately, we had over 100,000 free downloads because since NSF paid for these applications, we gave them away free. The only problem was very shortly after that, Palm changed their operating system. And as new people were buying Palms, and trying to do downloads, the apps didn't work on the new operating system. And so they were calling us saying, you have to redo these apps so that they work on the new operating system. And we said, excuse me, but free is free. And we are professors, and (laughs) that's not what we do. And people continued to call. So we thought, well, what if we hired one person? Can we hire a programmer, one of the, the original people that worked on these? And Maybe you can just fix this, and we can go ahead and do it. Anyway, long story short, we ended up having to spin a company out of the University of Michigan and license the applications from the university and then started trying to maintain them. And that was the very beginning of us doing anything other than our professorial work. That was how we got into the software business. What was important, we felt, was... You know, NSF gives all this money out to researchers, and you publish your papers, and that's really great, and you get your tenure, and that's, oh, that's really great, but then nothing happens. There isn't the path, and this was at a time at NSF where they really were talking about how do we transition research into commercial ventures. So basically what Kathy and I did was do what NSF wanted, take the research and make it real. Now, we were naive in the sense that we thought, well, you can start a business, you know, big deal, blah, blah, blah. And the University of Michigan was very, very supportive and, and helpful. And we, we started it, and I was the CEO thinking, ah, no problem. We had absolutely no marketing. People would call us up, and we'd answer the phone once a week and take messages and send off the software. We really had no idea how to do this as a real business. But after a while, we learned. People started helping us because they realized that what we had was valuable, and the Palm at that point was really uh, in its ascendancy. And if you were going to use Palm computers with kids in, in schools, then you needed our software, for example, Sketchy, which is a drawing and animation tool. Everybody loves Sketchy. 
what Sketchy did was allow you to create animations, not just a paint program, but sequences. And then kids would illustrate, for example, how do you do long division? What are the steps in doing long division? And they would show the math, and then they would write English to explain it. And the teacher said, we can teach long division in half the time when we use Sketchy. So we hit something. We hit a nerve that really made a difference in the early adopters. And there are teachers out there that are this, this generation of early adopting folks. At the same time, Kathy and I were doing research in Detroit, uh, along with some other folks, to look at the impact of handhelds on learning. We had three teachers, each of which had four classes. Two of those classes used Palm computers. Two of the classes didn't use Palm computers. So a, very, a controlled study paid for again by NSF. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, at the end of the second year, once the teachers finally understood how to take advantage of the technology, the children who in the classes that had the, the handhelds, they showed a 13% advantage over the children who didn't use the handhelds on the same test, same curriculum. It did confer an advantage to use these devices, and that was a difficult study to, to do. It cost almost $600,000 by the time we were finished to do that kind of research. But again, to support the anecdotal stories, we had now control study which is pretty cool, and we had a company, and we're still moving ahead. Kathy and I continue to do research at the universities, publishing papers, writing, because that's, that's what you do at a university, but also trying to figure out how to make this company into a viable force in K-12. And what year was this when you started? Well, we developed the apps in 2000. 2002, we were a small, little, tiny company, little, tiny company. So Gono as a business entity is squarely in the midst of offering instructional content via the palm or other handhelds for k-12 use that was the way it started but as of you know the last year the handhelds have converged with telephony and while there are still some companies that make standalone handhelds many of them are now cell phone computers as opposed to simply handheld computers. We are starting to see the implementation of cell phone computers into classrooms. Let's back up though. Let's you jump one step. What happened was Palm started to back away from the, the K-12 market and all of a sudden Dell came into the picture and had low-cost pocket PCs and we ported our software over to the Windows mobile platform and there was an uptake on pocket PCs. But then, just as Kathy was saying, that too stopped because this idea of who wants a non-telephone device? Well, there might be a few people, you know. Everything is now going towards this converged device. Parallel to this, a lot of folks have been been doing these one-on-one laptop programs, as Kathy mentioned earlier. And the results from those one-on-one laptop programs were, eh, they're not really working. And they reported why they weren't working. One reason was there wasn't educational software on the laptops. Two, the teachers weren't being given instruction, professional development, and how to use the laptops in the classroom. Not they can show how to use the computer, but how do you integrate it into the classroom? And third, just the costs were such that it wasn't as sustainable. You couldn't keep buying and buying laptops. It just mm-hmm. didn't work. And so that laptop thing is still going, but the momentum has certainly clearly died down. I know we had spoken about this before, Elliot, 
the business of how computers are sold on the consumer level with upgrades and operating systems that are updated every you know 18 months or so that seems to work against trying to create really successful learning software in a way that schools purchase equipment that outdates itself pretty quickly and schools can't necessarily repurchase again to, to keep up with whatever the state of the art is in computing. That's exactly no. right. And we had a school district that we talked to just this week that said they were ordering a device, a laptop, and it was changed. Now, this is one of the ultra-mobiles, but it was changed three times mm -hmm. before they got delivery. You mean the hardware was changed three times? The hardware was yeah. changed three times before they actually got the delivery of the device. Well, this might lead in nicely to my next question. I think it's very clear what the challenges are related to laptops and workstations in the classroom in that there are business initiatives to keep upgrading that schools can't afford to keep up with. Right. What do you see are the challenges with handhelds in the classroom? Well, can we take one step back? Because there is this new opportunity with these low-cost mini laptops that was in some sense started by the OLPC, the Nicholas Negroponte project, right, mm -hmm. that we could produce a $100 laptop computer and this would be the way to do it. And it was interesting when GoNo was developing its work and going out and selling software on handhelds, people would say to us, well, why should we buy a handheld? We can buy a $100 laptop computer and get a whole laptop computer. And we used to say to the folks, well, have you seen one for 100 bucks? If you do, go buy it. I mean, <laughs> and, you know, the, the proof's in the pudding. It never came out as 100, but it did come out as 200 as a demo, sort of, sort of pilot projects. But what did happen is Intel, Asus, now Dell, they're all putting out three to $400, $500 mini laptops. And what we're seeing is that schools are moving pretty quickly to buy those laptops and not the $1,500, not the $1,000 laptops, but the three, four, $500 laptops. And that is an exciting opportunity. Now, it's still XP, and you still have the problems that it's not instant on, instant off. There's all kinds of headaches that it's complex and operating systems. But still, the price point is really low. And that's a very, very exciting opportunity. Because the handhelds were $300, $350, $250 in that neighborhood. Well, maybe double that, then you get a, a full laptop. And some people wanted the laptop. People still want that. On the market today, you have this mini laptop movement, and then you have these converged devices that do have a lot of functionality. They run Windows Mobile. Now Android is out there. The iPhone is very popular. The Touch, well, the Touch really is not a, a phone device, so let's put that to the side. Sure. But it's sort of a phone-based device. Everybody has an offering in that space. And it's not unreasonable prices for those devices. So now the question is, is how could K-12 take advantage of it? Because remember from our study, and people would certainly concur, is that access was the problem, but now it seems like access is no longer the problem. It is within the grasp of schools to give every kid a computer. Now that computer could be a cell phone computer, it could be a mini laptop computer, but one could see that this is now within reach that the necessary conditions for computing to have an impact could actually be achieved. And that's really only in the last 6 to 12 months that that vision has been recognized in the community. But now another problem has raised its head. The biggest single problem now, if the, the children do indeed have access to technology, is the problem of the teachers. How do I really integrate 
this technology into the classroom. Because up until now, for the most part, technology is either the focus of the instruction in that it's an instructional technology class. They're teaching children about Word and Excel and Access and that sort of thing. Or it's an add-on to a lesson. Here we're going to be doing a lesson on the Civil War. Let's look at this website that deals with the Civil War. But it's not an integral part of the lesson. And we determined that it couldn't be an integral part of the lesson because there weren't tools available that easily allowed teachers to create lessons around the technology, other than things like Blackboard or WebCT or Moodle. And I teach at the university on Blackboard, and I can certainly understand why teachers aren't authoring their lessons every day in Blackboard. That's like asking them to program. Most of them, I would say, don't even know what HTML is especially when we see at the university elementary education majors who are only required to take one three-hour course in technology, and we get them, and they don't know the difference between save and save as. And we're going to ask these people to create their lessons in something like Blackboard? Well, we know that's not going to happen. So what we did was create what we call the mobile learning environment. And the mobile learning environment runs on top of Windows Mobile, Windows CE, or Windows XP, and easily allows the teachers to take whatever application they normally use. If they use Inspiration, if they use a paint program, if they use some type of drill and practice program, and it's just a simple program, it allows them to build a cohesive lesson in a very short amount of time with very little training and it is the focus and it contains all of the resources and all of the learning activities that children do. What Kathy's explaining is that schools have curriculum that they have to teach. They have existing curriculum and they bring that pencil and paper curriculum to the table and then they sit down next to it this computer whether it's a mini laptop or whether it's a cell phone computer, and they think, well, how do I take this pencil and paper stuff and make and integrate it with the technology? It's that school districts all across the country have things that they have to teach. So it's not like, okay, let's go in and let's replace the curriculum that someone's teaching with a new computer-based environment, because some companies try and do that. They'll Mm -hmm. say, okay, you adopt this technology, then you adopt this curriculum. And we found, for us, it, it didn't work. The school district said, we have an existing curriculum. We have to teach this. You can't tell me change the curriculum and use the technology. The tension there is, how do you integrate the technology with the school's existing curriculum? So let's say that technology and hardware, because it's coming down in price, is not the issue, and... The problem then becomes software that is not trying to undo lessons and materials teachers have been preparing in kind of an analog way for years uh, and telling them to chuck that aside and and now let's start anew with whatever this latest and greatest software uh, product tells you to teach. 
it's more about providing tools that work in addition to and complement side by side with the teachers' instructional materials that they've been creating for years. That's very yes. well put. Yes. Very well put. If you go to a situation where the computers are one-to-one, -one, where every child has a computer, it could be a cell phone computer or it could be a mini laptop computer, then all the learning activities, all the learning resources are on that device. It becomes the conduit then for the curriculum and for the artifacts that the student creates. In some sense, it does replace or certainly augments the paper and pencil materials because that was the problem with it, as Kathy pointed out earlier, that when you used the computer, it was an add-on. The major part of the lesson was still done on paper, and there might be one activity that you did on the computer. But that activity wasn't integrated with the rest of the pieces of paper, so the computer wasn't playing an integral role to the lesson. But now, with the potential for one-to-one, -one, the computer could play an integral role. Which is but as it is in business. Most business people do the majority of their work on their computer, and they use pencil and paper as an aside or as yes. an add-on for notes. So when we start talking about teaching children 21st century skills, teaching them how to use the computer for the bulk of what they do is certainly a 21st century skill. Well, certainly, so long as it's not just teaching uh, the technical means to do a PowerPoint presentation or write a, write a paper, uh, so long as it's real critical thinking that goes on. Right. I'm going to come back to that point in just a moment, but okay. before we get there, let me ask you, I've heard this expressed through business leaders that are involved in creating educational materials, that handhelds can present an opportunity to empower student learning in a way we've never before imagined possible. But it could be at the expense of teacher control. Could student empowerment and teacher control coexist in the classroom? Absolutely. The teachers who are out of control when students have handhelds are the same teachers who are out of control when the students have pencils and paper. <laughs> and I was a classroom teacher for 15 years. Even back in those days, we said, any teacher who could be replaced by a computer should be, because that was when the threat was, uh-oh, the computers are going to come in and replace the teachers. There is always room. There is a place for a good teacher. And in this case, the role of the teacher is different. It's not necessarily the role of handing out the information. You don't open their heads and dump it in. Rather, you give them the direction, and then you are there to contextualize things for them as they are doing their lessons. But they're not sitting there like little birds waiting to be fed. No, true. You're creating our autonomous learners. But you contextualize things as they find them or as they run into difficulties, trying to fit pieces together because you've structured the lesson for them. You're, uh, you're singing my song here. That <laughs> One of the things we often say at our organization is that a child is not a vessel to be filled, but a flame to be kindled. And Woo! what you're speaking to is looking to create that spark and to engage that 21st century learner. Exactly. And we saw that spark and the leveling of the playing field when we, we were working in Bedford-Stuyvesant in New York City with handhelds four years ago when the pocket PC was just beginning to be available to K-12. And we would go into these classrooms where children are, are physically abused, sexually abused. They live in homeless shelters. 
This is a very intense school. They have 100% free and reduced lunch, right? You bring in these pocket PCs, and they could do anything. They could do everything. If you looked at the work and said, who produced this, you wouldn't know that it was a child from Bedford-Stuyvesant. It could be a student from a, a upper-class suburb. The work stood on its own merits. And because the children there were not successful with the paper and the pencil. They didn't like it. It didn't meet their needs. It wasn't part of who they were. But you gave them this technology, and this kindled that flame, and they then had an opportunity to produce in the same way that the other kids had. It was astonishing to see. So it's your belief that 21st century learning skills can be addressed properly with handhelds? Yes, because the majority of the, the, the issue with 21st century skills, it's the way we learn and what we learn that really is changing. Children need to learn how instead of what. How do I find this information? How do I determine from this Internet what is valid information, what's correct? How does this fit into everything else that I'm reading, that I'm hearing? How does this merge with my textbook? It's the how. Again, it's helping the child take the information that's out there, because we all know there's plenty of it, assimilate it, and determine what's a valid source, what's real information. And the 21st century skills are about teamwork, are a lot about the, quote, the soft skills, the kids working together, collaboration, and if you watch classrooms where you have these big desktop computers and the kids are sort of sitting hunched over or looking up at the machines, they're not talking to each other and they're not sharing. They're just staring at the screens and with the headphones on. But you put mobile computers, handheld computers in the classroom, and the kids are looking at each other and talking to each other and putting the handhelds in front of each other's faces. They're working together. They're actively engaged in teamwork. It's a completely different flow in the classroom. The smallness, the immediacy, the ease of use of these handheld devices is exactly what is needed to support the 21st century skills, where your dynamic work group change over the course of a day. Different children work with different kids on different problems. No problem. That's what happens with these handheld computers, because you're not tethered. And we actually have some excellent photos of that yeah. when we were in Singapore last month, because we're working with researchers there at the university in Singapore. They're implementing a project with, they're going to follow third graders through third and fourth grade, and they will be watching them on cell phone computers. They're going to be giving them cell phone computers to use. And we saw them last month, and in preparation for the third graders who were going to be getting it, they took this, the ones who are still in second grade because their semester ends in November and their new year starts again in January. They decided to see how they would be able to use these, and so they gave them pocket PCs to use. And the learning activities and the diversity in the entry points into the lesson, even on the part of second graders, we saw eight different ways they completed a lesson that started out with uh, the lesson was on prepositions, and the teachers gave them pockets PCs and sent them out into the schoolyard, over to the koi pond, into the central office in groups of three to take pictures that were illustrations of the preposition in. You know, the fish are in the pond, the basketball is in the basket, things like that. They were 
setting it up. It wasn't just that one preposition. There was a, a range no, no. of prepositions. That's right. They, they gave them a series of prepositions, and they had to photograph instances of that preposition. And then they came back to the classroom, and they wrote sentences explaining their pictures. And then they shared their pictures that were examples of the preposition and their sentences that went along with it. And then they were doing a story on, on that also used prepositions. And part of it, the teacher wasn't sure that they could toggle back and forth between the story on the pocket PC and drawing. They were supposed to draw a story that illustrated the prepositions. And so she gave them a piece of paper. But we saw at least eight different ways the children did this, including one child who had no intention of using the pencil and paper at all. He wrote his story on the pocket PC and then toggled back and forth between the drawing and animation program and the story that he had written on the pocket PC and illustrated his story. And other students wrote their story on the paper first, like the teacher told them to, and then they went to the drawing. Some drew first and wrote a story that corresponded to it. Some wrote a story but drew different things. So they went back and erased their story and changed it to match what they drew. Some drew different things, but didn't go back to change their story on paper. So their story on paper and their one on the pocket PC didn't exactly match. But in the end, they all got the assignment done, but they were all able to do it their own way, the way that suited them best. That really speaks to the empowerment for students. And one of the things that I wonder about for a greater acceptance of handhelds in the classroom. Do you nope. have any thoughts or insights into what professional development should be in place to help this succeed? Sure. One thing that we really work with the teachers on an ongoing basis, and I think uh, companies that really understand the role of technology in uh, the school realize it's not a one-shot deal. You just go in and you show the teachers how to use the computers. Though that is what the failures of those laptop programs, that's one of the things they pointed to was the lack of ongoing professional development with the integration issue. We really stress that when we work with a school district. And there are districts that say, well, we don't have the money, and we really can't do professional development. And Kathy and I just sort of grimace inside because we know that there's going to be trouble because the teachers, uh, the administrators, they're not going to understand how to use the technology and when the bumps happen, because there's always going to be bumps, they're not going to know how to deal with those bumps. Professional development is having experts help the, the teachers, but it's also having the teachers talk to each other and work together with each other to get over those bumps. So it's great that schools can invest in the technology, but just buying the equipment and any possible software to benefit the instruction is only half the solution. Exactly. That's exactly right. It, it would be like buying a new car. It really helps if someone walks you through all of the features of the new car. Otherwise, you're driving, but you're not really taking advantage of all of the, the bells and whistles that that new car has. And if you look at new car technology, you know, there's lots of things they can do if you knew how to operate it. And in this case, just knowing that a lot of the districts think that because their teachers know how to use a computer, that that translates into knowing how to integrate it. But in fact, that's something that they don't teach in school because most of the colleges of education don't have tools to be able to teach prospective teachers how to do that. And teachers who have been out there in the field certainly 
don't have that information. So if we could summarize, one of the first challenges that we saw to getting technology to have an impact on the kids is the access problem. And now we feel that the, the access problem, while it's not gone away, it certainly is addressable in a scalable, sustainable way. But then the next problem is this issue of how do you integrate existing curriculum with the technology? And that requires professional development. It requires software that helps the teachers in doing that integration. I mean, the, the technology scaffolds, in some sense, the teachers in creating coherent, cohesive lessons. And the professional development also scaffolds the teachers in creating uh, coherent, cohesive lessons that integrate the technology. So that's sort of the second piece, is now that we've got access addressed, now we've got to deal with this integration problem, and it's integration with existing curriculum. People say, and I'll be honest, I'm guilty of it too, we need to have a new curriculum. The technology enables you to do new things. And that's easy to say, but that doesn't address what schools today have problems with. The curriculum will change. But it's not going to change everything on day one. You have to start where the teachers are with their existing curriculum, help them to understand how to integrate it using tools, like Kathy said, and the professional development, as we just said, and then the teachers will move it along. If I could branch off of your comment there, classrooms have the potential to see beneficial change as a result of technology. Today, there are so many different ways of interfacing with these new technologies, be it classroom technologies like the tablet PC or smart boards or consumer technologies like Nintendo's Wii or the Apple iPhone. Are you seeing any technology trends that are important to watch in terms of learning? I think the, the smallness issue is really, really important. And the cell phone computer is not simply just a smaller laptop computer. That is, well, we've spent years learning how to design interfaces for laptop computers. Well, we can use all those same techniques, scale it back a little bit, but then design for cell phone computers. And the answer to that is no. Designing for mobile machines with, for small screen devices is different than designing for 15 and 17 inch screens. And we have to think about what is the essence, what's really important, and it's going to change how we design our software, how we design our web pages. And the companies that simply take their 17-inch or 15-inch technology and just try and repackage it for the small screen, they will lose out. People will not buy that software because it is not effective on that little screen. That seems to be a common occurrence with publishers today. That is, if they have a successful program in one media format, they simply port it over to another. And that is not the best solution for addressing mobile computing or any other kind of platform for that matter. Exactly. It might make instant business success, but they won't have business success with that simplistic model. We'll see, right? The proof's in the pudding. It's too early to say, that's our opinion. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, one of the things that I worry about with smart boards is people are just porting all of their you know, book-based content into static PDFs to be displayed on smart boards. It's like exactly. there, there's nothing engaging there about that solution. Right. When the children are simply watching something bigger. We were in Mexico, and we saw that Mexico had adopted the smart boards in all the classrooms, and they were demonstrating at a meeting that we were attending how they were going to be used in the classroom. And it was the teacher who had the book open and displayed on the smart board, and 
she was going through the lesson with the book on the smart board. And it was like, oh, my gosh. It's, it's just a bigger book. Mm-hmm. The, still, the children are still being passive learners. They are watching her as opposed to what they could be doing when they have technology that fits their size and they're up and moving around. A completely Amazing. different learning environment. But Kathy said it was a very powerful experience for both of us to see that here is a country that was trying, they really were trying to sort of move into the 21st century and they were going to equip their classrooms with all these expensive, you know, relatively expensive electronic whiteboards. And all they were doing with it is the same thing that they had done with the book. And the book wasn't particularly interesting to the kids. Displaying it a little bigger probably is not going to have any impact whatsoever, but they're going to spend a whole lot of money. We were laughing because we think, let's see, is this the same as just telling them the same thing, only louder? Yeah. Well, they're, they're, Andy Warhol had an expression that he said, if you can't make it big, make it red. So maybe that's the next step. That's right. <laughs> Actually, that's good. Now that's, that's not to say that some people, you know, I, I don't want to be too crude, that some people aren't doing innovative, imaginative yeah. things with smart boards, right. because they are. Very true. Yeah. I don't mean to be down on smart boards. I'm excited yeah. by them, but I get disheartened when I see its use in such a way that it's really not forward-thinking to exactly. benefit the instruction with the great medium that's available to them. Exactly. Well, historically, right, new technology mimics old technology until you figure out how to take advantage of the new. So the, the classic example is uh, when the movie camera came out, you photographed theater because, well, okay, we've got a motion picture camera. Let's then get the motion of the theater. But then Hollywood came along and said, no, no, this is a new genre. This is a new medium. We could tell a new kind of story. But it wasn't immediate. It took a while to figure it out. So the folks at SRI, we work with them, and they are doing some wonderful things with the whiteboards, with the clickers. They're really trying to go beyond the obvious things that you could do with those devices and be much more engaged, much more imaginative. Well, let me ask both of you, whose work are you watching these days? Who do you think are are doing some neat work with technology and learning that you think would really benefit students everywhere? Well, I think that not just the sort of the education world, but I think the folks who are really trying to develop the apps for the mobile computers and are grappling with how do you use multi-touch, how do you display information, those are the folks that we're looking at. The range of location-based apps that people are coming out with now with the, the fact that the GPS is built in, those are very, very provocative. And so we're going to see new interface conventions being generated because now we can have lots and lots of applications the phone companies have opened up and said, hey, you can put applications on here, and it's not just the three or four that sort of come with the phone when you bought it, but you can download and install applications, and it is a full-blown computer. Kathy has been using the word, it was sort of snuck it in. When she says the word cell phone, she says the word cell phone computer, because somehow, you know, when you say a cell phone, you think of it's kind of a, you know, it's just a cell phone. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is a cell phone computer, just like you have desktop computers and laptop computers. You have cell phone computers. So the emphasis is on the computing part, that it can enable all kinds of applications. So we're very, we follow is, uh, for example, the Android, uh, the applications that are coming out now are very, very interesting. What do you build? How do they work? What about ease of use? 
No one's going to read manuals. These things have just got to be picked up and used. That's a real challenge. Oh, true. I, I sometimes wonder if the difficulty with technology in a classroom is in how it is defined semantically, that a cell phone in the entertainment industry is portable entertainment or right. portable gaming device, whereas that terminology doesn't work in the classroom. Right. I like how you're framing the conversation that these are cell phone computers. They're not cell phones. They're not entertainment devices. They're made for learning. Yes. Yes, and in some cases, and we, we had a discussion about this yesterday, should it be or should it not be? In Singapore, they are not enabling the voice. They are paying only for a data plan for the third and fourth graders so that they will have 24-7 access to the Internet, which really levels the playing field because it doesn't make any difference if you have an Internet capability at home. You can still have access to all of the information no matter where you are because of your cellular capability. But someone in a, in a parents group yesterday said, do you really think it would make a difference and what difference would it make if you did indeed give them voice in addition to it? And we have used the term, we've gone away from acceptable use policy of devices to what we call responsible use. And we are believing that what we need to do as educators is make all of these users responsible for what they do with their technology, how exactly they use it. It's, it's not we're dictating that this is acceptable and this isn't. It's be responsible and what does that mean? And so perhaps it means do give them voice, but we encourage the schools to let the children put a few tunes on the MP3 player or to let them download a game or two because we want the device to seem personal to the children, as opposed to it just being another school device. If it's personal, then they're taking better care of it. Then they're making sure that it's charged, because it's their things. It's their personal device. And that's what's important to you, are those things that are personal to you. We see a, tra a trajectory, and this issue of one-to-one -one computing, in fact, the notion of one-to-one -one is going to change. That, that term is inappropriate. It, it's, a, it's a dominant term now because it, it comes out of the laptop world, but it still focuses on the technology as opposed to what the kids are going to do with the technology. So, uh, number one, I think over the next few years, the notion of one-to-one, -one, the term, will disappear, and what's going to happen is that it's, it will be a given that all the children will have a computing device it probably is going to happen faster than most people think. I mean, right now, probably 95% of the schools, if not more, in the United States ban cell phones. But once this dam breaks, when the schools see that, number one, the kids are bringing computers to school, then they don't, and the schools then don't have to buy the computers for the kids, that will, uh, administrators are going to light, <laughs> the light bulb will light up and say, oh, I don't have to buy a computer for the child. The child's already bringing a computer to school. But then they're going to say, well, but one brings a Motorola, one brings a Nokia, one brings an iPhone. Oh, well, then you just put a layer of software, and then it makes all those non-homogeneous devices homogeneous with respect to the teacher and the learning activities. Just like a Dell and a Sony and a Gateway, they're different computers. You put a layer of software on them, and now they're all the same. And that same, same idea is going to happen in the cell phone computer world. And I think, we think it's going to happen 
very, very quickly. That's great. Not five years. Oh, no, 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 no. Two to three years. This has been Scott Trailer interviewing Kathleen Norris of the University of North Texas and Elliot Soloway of the University of Michigan for Tech and Learning Magazine. This recording can be freely shared in its entirety for educational purposes only. Portions of this interview can be found on the Tech and Learning website at www.techlearning.com, as well as the 360Kid blog at www.360kid.com blog. The music in this podcast is called Electronic Space and was written by Supersport. It is used under a Creative Commons license, and copies of this music file can be found at www.sectionz.com. That's section spelt with a letter Z dot com. Thank you for listening.